Welcome to a special edition of Real Christianity. I'm your host, Dale Partridge, and over the past several months, I've had the privilege of interviewing 12 of the top theologians of our time. We discuss everything from apologetics and church history to the biblical family and standing firm on sound doctrine. The objective of this series was to strengthen the theology of listeners and give them the tools they need to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen up, focus in, and prepare your mind for volume one of the Theologian series. In this episode of the Theologian series, I interviewed Dr. Dustin Benge about why all Christians should study church history. Dr. Benge is the provost and professor of church history and preaching at Union School of Theology in the United Kingdom. Dustin and I became friends over social media through his incredibly powerful Twitter feed that's just filled with punchy, bold one-liners that just make you want to shout amen when you're looking at your phone or your computer. Dr. Benge is the author of several books and is the host of the Walking Worthy podcast. In our interview, Dustin and I are going to be discussing why Christians must seek to have a working knowledge of church history and how having this knowledge can protect themselves and their families against false doctrine and bad theology. So guys, grab your Bible and sharpen your pencil because it's time to tune in to another powerful episode of the Theologian Series. Welcome to the Theologian Series, Dr. Dustin Bench. Hi, Dale. It's so so nice to uh, be with you today. Thank you so much for the kind invitation to join you. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation about church history. It is so critical. You and I, even before interviewing or this interview, we're talking about church history. We could probably go on for hours. It's so important for Christians to know um, so that they can have a strong relationship with God. They can guard themselves against heresy. Um, they can uh, fix themselves upon sound doctrine and theology. I want to talk to you, Dustin, about this. Uh, we live in a time where uh, the church at large um, just avoids the field of church history. Now, the seminary world doesn't, but but the church in general does. Uh, in fact, I'd say many modern Christians can't tell you much about the Acts Church or the early church fathers or the Middle Ages or the Reformation, um, the Puritans, the Great Awakening, the Revivalists, right? There's just uh, a, an absence that is sensed uh, among the modern church. Can you tell us why church history is something that we should all as Christians be eager to study? Well, that that's such a large question. Um, through the years, I've met so many people in the church, um, just like you have described. I've, I've even met some that want to completely detach themselves from history um, altogether, just believing that they perhaps have a better way to do things in our modern and technologically advanced culture. However, that's so impossible to do. It's Mm. impossible to separate ourselves from church history. And if I could, just in thinking about this, let me mention a few things uh, to consider, really just to kind of pinpoint, if you will, why Christians should study church history and the importance of it, and really the vitality that it can have in our lives and thinking uh, in our Christian walk. First of all, I would say, Dale, history has meaning. Like it or not, each one of us are historical beings. That is, Hmm. we are living in history. 
I remember a quote by Cicero who said, or who observed that history regulates our lives. And I've often thought about that and think that he's right. In other words, no one is able to escape the effects of history. Government, politics, economy, art, literature, all the rest of it, it has the essence of shaping the current culture that we're in. So we are products at the moment of what has happened in the past to us. So we interact with history every single day, especially now that we are living in the UK. Um, When I travel to the campus of Union School of Theology every day, I travel over roads that were built by the Romans. And Mm. it's fascinating to do that. So I'm interacting with a bit of history every day. So for the Christian community, to know history is vital because ultimately history is the stage upon which God plays out the redemptive history of his son. Mm. So at the beginning is the fall from the garden, and then at the end is the last judgment. And in between is the most crucial event of all, the entry of the eternal God into time as a man, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. And so within that timeline, we see God who is undoubtedly active in history. So history has meaning because it has been planned and it has been structured by God. Mm. So that's something that we as Christians need to know. History has meaning because we are connected to it, like it or not. We can also, secondly, I would say, learn from the past. This is one of the more obvious reasons for studying church history, to learn from the mistakes of the past. We all know the famous proverb, he who does not remember the past is doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we can study the nuances of the ancient history Arianism to help us combat the heretical views maintained by modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance. Mm -hmm. So the thoughts and the writings of those within church history serve the church today if only we are willing to learn from them. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I say I think this is so key. I mean, it's just we can't escape I think that's true is that it, it's so formative, whether we want to admit it or not. I love that point that you made there, Dustin, is that it's, it's such a critical recognition uh, that it's shaping us now um, and, and it's inescapable. And um, the point that you made of Arianism, right? Um, a lot of people might be thinking about you know, what's going on in World War II? Why are you talking about that? And versus the difference of, no, we're talking about um, early church and the view of Trinitarian theology and understanding that, yeah, that the enemy has only a few (laughs) heresies that he uses over and over again, wrapping them up in different packages. And when you know church history, you can see these repetitions and you go, oh, that's that's just been done before, and there's been a church council that's pushed that away before. And and but if you're unaware, uh, then you're you're um, not as effective, and you could be deceived, 
in the midst of it. So I just love those points. Yeah, I would also say, Dale, that being a historian, and I'm still young, we are young, and so I don't think of myself as a historian as such, but being a historian, enjoying history, studying history, throughout the years, it has really built a sense of humility within me. And I think that's another reason why Christians should know history and study history, because the study of church history informs us about our predecessors in the faith. That is, those who have helped shape our Christian communities, our churches, our ministries, and really thus making us who we are as people. And so Mm. studying church history builds humility into our lives. It builds modesty into our lives. And therefore, I think ultimately it has a sanctifying influence upon us because Mm. it provides for us a map for the Christian life. It's a map based on the countless faithful men and women that have gone before us. Now, of course, the Bible provides the basic map for the Christian life, but the thought of other Christians down through the ages can help illumine and even illustrate what is contained in the Scripture. And so if I did not have church history to go back and read these faithful writings, there are many things perhaps that I would not arrive at myself. And so it does build a sense of humility in me recognizing that there is a vast tradition of God working upon the minds and within the pens of those who have gone before me. Yeah, that's that's a huge point right there, Dustin, is that you're saying when we have this kind of autonomous view um, and we don't realize that there's a history around us. I remember watching a video of Paul Washer giving a tour of his library and he he walks up to a section of his shelf and it's all great confessions of faith. Um, and he he says he was angry when he read them the first time because he had been trying for so many months or so many years um, trying to understand some of the truths that men had already clarified. And he was so frustrated that he spent years trying to understand concepts that were so simplified in this one statement and he had never read it. And he was, again, just this idea of being detached from the pens of church history. That there are men that have come before that have, we could stand on the shoulders of theologians who were standing on the shoulders of theologians and, and to, um, to think that we are, would operate without that wonderful gift is just strange. Well, it's quite odd, isn't it, that we would just ignore really models for imitation. Uh, I think that's another thing that just kind of pops into my mind as a reason to study church history is ultimately history provides models of imitation. We read um, Hebrews 11, for instance, and how Mm. the writer of Hebrews uses the history of God's faithful people in the Old Covenant to encourage his own readers to run the race of faith. 
So the writer of Hebrews is using, in essence, church history to say to his modern-day readers, these are examples that you need to follow. These are examples that you need to imitate. And so he wants to, them to draw encouragement and to press mm-hmm. on in the faith and obedience towards the final goal of the certainty that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And we lose the essence of that understanding when we neglect the history that has come before us. Amen. Amen. I I think about the idea, I I forgot who talked about it, but the idea of uh, a pictograph of faith of you're in a rowboat and you're, you're facing backwards, you're going forwards, but you're not facing the way you're going, but you're looking backwards like in a rowboat and you're pushing yourself forward. And the reason you can go forward is because you're looking backwards, meaning that you have a trust in, in, in what's unknown because you can look behind you of what is known. And I, I, I see history like that in the church. I, I see what the, the Lord has done within brothers and sisters of old. And I get to watch and go, well, this is in alignment with scripture. This is what the Lord has done throughout church history. Um, this is what he will likely do with me. Uh, meaning that I, I don't have to think of myself as, again, autonomous or abstract. I'm within the church. I'm one of God's children. And I get to look at the other historical circumstances and outcomes of his other children that would, again, strengthen my confidence and understanding of how he might deal with me. And um, that's been very helpful. Um, you know, we should move on to this next question because we could, we could just keep talking uh, forever on this. But, um, you know, Dustin, many modern uh, Christians, they're, they're just attracted to these modern churches. But these modern churches, as we were just talking about, can feel detached from church history, not just in their newness, but just in the way that they're preaching. They're, they, they're writing their own statements of faith um, as if, again, they're the first Christians on earth. Um, they have no denominational heritage. Not necessarily that, I'm not saying that we need that, but I'm saying they're, they're just not connected to the main rivers or the main streams of historical Christianity. There's no clear commitment to historical theology, meaning that they're in a sense of incongruent theological convictions. Um, and so my question is, why is it important for modern churches corporately really to attach themselves to Christian history, to Christian history? I mean, um, how can we really can, you know, uh, encourage pastors to, you know, place themselves in the Christian family tree? Um, what's the value there of doing that as a church? Well, first I would say that no church is created in a vacuum. No church is an island, as it were. Uh, That's the complete antithesis of how the church was founded in the book of Acts. There's no way, Dale, to faithfully preach and teach the Bible without looking from our modern context into the past. After all, when you open the Bible— you're not only opening God's Word and God's revelation to us, but the Bible is in and of itself a book of God's history. Mm -hmm. And so to purposefully detach ourselves from Christian history is essentially impossible. 
it's important for pastors to emphasize history and our forebears to demonstrate that the Christian life was not meant to be lived in isolation from the greater context of God's history of redemption. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. Even to say our God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to place ourselves within the context of a history, that is, the history of Israel, what God did through his people in Israel, how eventually the Messiah came forth, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose from the dead, and ascended back to God. All of this, of course, is the message of the gospel, which is also a message of history. Mm -hmm. So at no point can the church avoid history or think that they have a better or more modern way of doing things. And then for the reasons that I mentioned before, history is meant to demonstrate to God's people that we are not traveling the Christian road alone but that mm-hmm. we have a rich heritage from which to learn in order to provide a proper map for us to follow. So no church can open the Bible, faithfully proclaim the Bible, faithfully proclaim God's revelation to man through Christ, which is the gospel, and avoid history, because that message must be planted in time and space and history in order to be validated. Yeah, I think this is so true. And, you know, we, we need to recognize, I believe, as, as Christians and as pastors, the Lord's theological clarifying that has occurred, especially, uh, you know, over the past 2,000 years, right? Obviously, there was a huge theological clarifying moment when Christ came. And so, the, you know, God's making clear all of the prophetic promises that were coming. And then over the last 2,000 years, I always think about it took a long time for theological clarity to occur because nobody had a copy of the scriptures to study, to scrutinize, to have discussions about. Um, The fact that Augustine had um, the Bible that he had, how many other individuals could he really have deep theological discourse over that document that he had. I mean, not many. And so, you know, people wonder why it took so many centuries for certain theological conclusions to really take root. Well, it's like there was such a a huge amount of time before we, we didn't have the printing press until, you know, the 1500s or, you know, some argue a little earlier in a sense, but we didn't have multiple copies of the Bible for scrutiny, for discussion, for discourse. And so that's why the boom of the Reformation creates this beautiful mass of theological clarity because all these people have a Bible now and they can read it in their language and they can discuss it. And you have this Puritan Puritan movement of just huge amounts of writing and clarity and, and confessional statements that come out of the church. And, um, uh, for me, I've just realized, uh, you know, one, I'm not saying that we ever make confessions elevated higher than the scriptures, but these confessions as a church, being a confessional church, meaning that, hey, we align with this statement of faith, you know, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Hey, that's that's a confession that we can stand behind. Um, you know, is it tit for tat, 99, you know, or 100% of everything you agree with? Maybe not. But generally speaking, we can align with that statement of faith or the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
And I just see so many churches now, Dustin, that are me, my Bible, and I. They're just, we got, grabbed our Bible and we're going to start new, our new version of Christianity detached from this church history. And I go, why? 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 You're missing out on the rich, clarified truths and you're going to make the same mistakes. And they already are making the same mistakes that they don't even see because they don't know. Well, so many churches just aren't interested in that theological clarity, are they? Um, mm. we, we have a better way. We have a more intellectually advanced way. We're not into antiquarian thought. We're not into mm. reading antiques. Um, we see them as dusty figures in the past that have nothing to teach us in our modern mm. context. And so it's, it's the changing of the language that we use. We're not interested in historically how you define a Christian because we put on the glasses of modern day culture in order to define a Christian. And so instead of seeing the Bible through a historical, theological, clear lens, they rather put on the lens of culture and view the Bible, which mm. always, always leads to error. Mm. Yeah, I think about I think about Dr. MacArthur, who's done such a great job of every time I listen to his sermons, I feel like he takes me into the world of the Bible. Um, when he talks about even church history, he might talk about Augustine. I feel like I'm there in Rome with Augustine, and I'm I'm being brought in to the scriptures instead of projecting my modern view which is what you're talking about, on the scriptures. Well, it's a completely different worldview, isn't it? The, the view of the modern church is that Christ makes much of us, and the view of the doctrinal, biblical, theologically grounded, clear church, that is the church of the scripture, the church of the Bible, is that we make much of God. And so hmm. the, it's a complete antithesis. The, the mission is different. The gospel is different. The message is different. The preaching is different. Um, and eventually, which is what we have at the moment rising up, we just begin to see different definitions of the gospel come forward. Yeah, when I first got into church history a few years ago, um, I remember having a sense of discovering who I am. It was a in 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 all the right ways in terms of I remember having this sense of of feeling home that I I finally found that there is a scarlet thread or a bloodline back to Christ of the biblical church. And that I am not alone, and I'm, I don't have to be this lone wolf theologian that's inventing my own theology in a vacuum. Um, that I actually found out that men that came before me have already established clarity to such an extreme that I don't need to spend the thousands of hours I can look at their work and make a decision. Um, I could seek the scriptures and evaluate and examine uh, these truths to one another. It was such a help and such an identity shift in terms of um, not just my identity in Christ, but more specifically my identity as a believer in connection with all the other believers throughout history.
And so I, I just love that. Um, that that's been such an important part. You know, Dustin, when you when you begin to study church history, you you quickly notice that it's a study of God's people, or it's God's history through people. And you begin to learn uh, of men like Polycarp. Man, I I remember reading the martyrdom of Polycarp and just being blown away and encouraged. We hear about Augustine and Luther and women like Joan of Arc and Lady Jane Grey and uh, the story of Lady Jane Grey's Bible and Susanna Wesley. And um, why should modern Christians be familiar with these significant characters throughout church history? Like what, what's the importance of that, of studying the biographical side of God's people? That's a great question. You and I both love Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon is so quotable, uh, the great Baptist preacher of the last century. He once said, it seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves should think of so little of what he has revealed to others. Mm. And I've always found that is so striking um, in our approach to church history. There's many reasons we tend to dismiss great figures of the past, and we've talked about some of those reasons. We know better. We're more culturally advanced. We're more sophisticated. We have more education. We're in greater cultured times and so on. But these great men and women throughout history are actually a portrait of the fruit of the Holy Spirit's teaching activity as they sought to understand the Scripture. Mm. One of the great um, historian and lover of the Puritans, J.I. Packer, said, of course, they're not infallible in their understanding of the Scriptures, but neither should they be neglected. That is, Mm. we don't at all, Dale, place the teaching of men and women in the past on the same level as Holy Scripture, but we can and do learn from them, as we've said, their insights, their mistakes, their character, their courage, their boldness, and even their errors. Hmm. And so on a personal note, there, there's nothing quite so wonderful for me to read the biography of somebody like Augustine, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Lloyd-Jones, someone else, and see God use them in their own context. Because these biographical accounts actually encourage me that, hey, God is still working. And God is still using fallible men and women for His glory and His purposes. I think that's the whole reason the Holy Spirit decided to put Hebrews 11 in the Scripture because every person he outlines in Hebrews 11 are great consummate sinners. Mm. And what it does is it encourages us, hey, there's a chance for me. I'm fallible. I'm in error most of the time. I don't have it all put together. I don't have it all figured out. But God is still working, and He can work in me. And so, for instance, if we didn't have Martin Luther... Would we know as much about justification by faith alone as we currently do? If we didn't have somebody like Jonathan Edwards, would we know as much about joy as we currently do? If we didn't have John Owen, the great 
Puritan at Oxford would we know as much about how that we should mortify sin as we do. And I could go on and on. And perhaps we would know those things. But the point is that God led these faithful believers into the depths of His Word, not only for their context, but for future generations to know, to cherish, and adore Christ more. That's what they do, Dale. They just make me love Jesus more. And that's how God has used so many of these figures in my own life. Yeah, I mean, this is what you're saying. And that quote, I'm going to have to get a copy of that quote from Spurgeon because that, again, as Spurgeon does, he he basically puts to words everything you're thinking, but you don't know how to say. Um, and the uh, the reality is, yes, we look so highly at our own illumination of the Spirit. Our own, you know, the Lord reveals something so beautiful in the Scriptures to us, and we, 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 we put it on a pedestal in our hearts and our life. It, sometimes for many people, it defines their life. That the Lord revealed this to me in the scriptures one day I was reading, and this changed everything for me. Yet we don't look at those same experiences as equal value in others in the church. Those other believers and brothers and sisters who have had equal uh, illumination moments of clarity and have actually brought those things to pen and ink and revealed them in such sufficient language that you can examine them against the scriptures and you go, wow, you have this, again, this, um, this confirmation of the spirit, uh, across so many different believers that go, that is right. That's an amazing clarified doctrine of justification, Luther, that this is amazing. And to appreciate those things is so valuable, especially if the brother or sister is fruitful and sanctified, right? I, I think about when I read the Valley of Vision, right? This is, if you guys aren't familiar with it, it's a prayer journal uh, of great Puritan prayers. And the Valley of Vision, when I read those prayers, one, I just go, I cannot believe the maturity of these individuals, the prayers they're praying. But it makes me trust what they're writing. Um, it makes me trust what else they wrote. And um, I just want to encourage us all to yeah, not shove off church history and go, I'm going to figure it out on my own. I was a part of a church who did that. And we were detached. And no one was ever s- as smart as we were. And um, it was really dangerous. When I f- cracked into the golden box of Puritan work, it changed my life in terms of bringing that clarity. So I love that um, uh, that clarity that you brought there, Dustin. Um, 150 years ago, Dustin, the sources of information were very limited um, in comparison to today. I think I read an article once that was talking about, um, you know, the amount of of content that we read in the day is what most people would read or would read over a year in terms of just the scroll or, or the content that was at least presented to us. We're just inundated with content. And as a result, um, false teaching and heretical theology um, at that time had, had fewer ways to be passed along. But today, in the information age, with social media, podcasts, sermons, 
you know, abundance of books, just one click on Amazon, documentaries, movies. See, the average Christian is bombarded with an opportunity to hear many false ideas and bad theology on a weekly, if not a daily basis. And so how can a grasp of church history um, and historical theology help these modern Christians identify what's not true, to, to refute it, and to actually present the truth in, in response? Ecclesiastes 1.9 says there is nothing new under the sun. And that's such a good verse for the context of the conversation here. In, in other words, when I hear of new theology or new revelation, I automatically become extremely skeptical about the belief system, the theology, the biblical understanding of that particular individual. Young men love to stand in the pulpits today and talk about their new theology. But church history teaches us that as believers, we need to hold tightly to that one single redemptive thread that God has woven throughout church history. We, we mm-hmm. must be committed not to the new faith, but to the faith once delivered to all the saints. Mm-hmm. And that is a historical faith. Over and over throughout Paul's epistles, for instance, Paul warns the church to stay close to that faith, to preach that one faith, to follow that one path. We are in a long line of godly men and women, and good students of church history are able to go back and into the past and examine the confessions of faith and sermons and councils and creeds and all of the rest of it, seeing how they match up to the teaching of Scripture and then use that as a rubric over Mm -hmm. which to examine every aspect of teaching today in order to determine the validity of that teaching. Mm -hmm. Dale, most heresies today are just repackaged from the past. Mm -hmm. There's no heresy that I can think of at the moment that has just been invented in the past 50 years. Nine times out of ten, as it were, you can go back in church history and find that heresy appearing somewhere, though today it may be cloaked in different language Most heresies are just repackaged. And so our Mm -hmm. enemy has always led people in the same direction of falsehood. It it may Mm -hmm. be packaged differently, but it's essentially the same. We know this only if we know church history. Mm -hmm. You have to go back to the past in order to identify and refute false teaching. And so that means we have to be very familiar with the writings of the past, the preaching of the past, the history of the past, and the events of the past in order to know, hey, this is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. This is an old heresy repackaged in different language. I need to avoid that. And the only way to do that is to know church history. Well, and you can look back about how did the church refute it then 
so you can lean heavily on on you don't need to uh, the, the hard work's done for you in most cases now again we have a modern context we might need to um, you know accommodate new language but we can learn how the church reacted. We can learn the defense that occurred on both sides. We can learn how to stand for the truth as a replacement of that heresy. Um, and so I've seen so many uh, individuals um, miss out on that because they don't know the councils and the confessions. Uh, those two things alone, right? If you just can look back at the church councils, the major church councils throughout church history and the great confessions of faith, you have a pretty good look at what um, has been presented to the church. And man, I'll tell you, some of the stuff looks really good at first. Um, not, not too long ago, I was uh, actually had a Bible study. And one of the ways that I was teaching our group that the heresy is not always right on the front of the page in bold letters, is for about 10 minutes, I taught and read the Trinity out of the uh, Mormon's definition of the Trinity. And nobody in my 40-person Bible study had caught it until I said, hey guys, I just want to let you know, I said a few statements here that were from the Mormon view of the Trinity, and they were heretical. And I, I was using that to illustrate my point, that it's the fine details. And that's what you'll see throughout church history is these heresies that aren't rejected immediately, because it takes some time to look at them and you go, wow, that's, that's really close, but it's not right. And the councils and the confessions do a great job with precision. Um, when I read the Confession of Faith or at the, the Westminster Confession, every single word was chosen specifically to convey a specific meaning. And what a helpful tool those things have been so that I can know what the real thing is throughout church history in alignment with the scriptures. I can study the word of God so that when a counterfeit rises up, I can see it. And so I, I love that, um, that perspective, Dustin, that you've had on knowing those truths. Um, Dustin, as we get ready to close out here in a few minutes, if you had to think of some individuals, let's say three of them from church history, uh, which I know is very difficult to do, and you had to study them deeply, um, who are those people and why? Well, that's like asking a father to pick his favorite child. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really difficult question. Uh, because there's so many. I, I go into my office every day uh, on campus or here in my home office, and I'm surrounded by books that cry forth from church history, glorious truths that I want to devour. It, it seems there's uh, something glorious every day, a diamond or a bar of gold that I've missed. But if I were to choose Three, they may be quite obvious because I've already mentioned their names, even perhaps a couple times, almost from three different eras of church history. Because God, throughout church history, it's been interesting how he has emphasized certain things when they needed to be emphasized. Mm. And so from three different eras of church history, I would select, first of all, probably uh, Augustine or Augustine, as some mm. know him, because he rises to the, to the forefront 
of our connection with the church fathers is he taught us, for instance, of the supreme authority of scripture, the necessity of the church, what it means to have a real relationship with Christ. So some of those practical, major, primary doctrinal issues, Augustine is really a go-to and most everyone else I study after him, we would call Augustinian in their theology Mm -hmm. because he is the ocean from which most all those rivers flow. Secondly, coming to the period of the Reformation, I would probably choose Calvin, uh, perhaps not for the obvious reasons that one would choose Calvin because of his teachings on salvation, uh, even though I'm in agreement with those. But more practically, I love Calvin's instruction on the Christian life. And as a pastor, he was preeminently teaching about sanctification and how to live as a Christian believer in the world. And his institutes, uh, though beautifully theological, are basically um, a roadmap or a handbook for practical Christian living. Mm-hmm. He, he's writing this not necessarily for the academy. He's writing this for people in the pews of his church every single Lord's Day, uh, writing copiously on prayer, things like prayer and fighting and, and dealing with sin in our lives. And so Calvin, because of very practical Christian living. And then third, mm-hmm. um, just post-Puritan era, some would argue, Uh, would be probably Jonathan Edwards. I've loved Edwards for years. Uh, He's taught me so many things. Uh, My PhD was on Jonathan Edwards, but he's taught me and practically demonstrated what it looks like for a Christian believer to have a full-orbed, reformed Christian worldview. Mm. In other words, to see everything through the lens of Christ to see everything through the lens of Scripture, to see everything through the lens of the glory of God. And so Mm. I could give many more examples, but those three men particularly have probably helped me the greatest uh, thus far. Very Mm. early on, as I was beginning study, just when I went into seminary, I heard Derek Thomas say this. He gave some advice Uh, to budding young historians like myself. And he said, throughout your life, you need to pick one. Most people can pick one, maybe two at the most individuals in church history and study them as a hobby and dedicate yourself to those men, one or two at most, and to know everything they said, to read everything they wrote, and to devour everything they said. And I think that's been great advice because I can chase rabbit trails. Oh my goodness, I love Thomas Watson one minute and Thomas Manton the next and John Owen the next and Augustine the next and Martin Luther the next and Richard Baxter the next. And and I'm just all over the place and I don't have a full-orbed view of anyone, but as a hobby, Are you studying one in particular person? Have you dedicated yourself to one in particular person's theology and history and story? And that's always been very good advice for me. Hmm. 
really great advice. I think that's very practical and, uh, and very useful. Right. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I'm, as you're saying that I'm trying to evaluate who is this person for me? Who is the one? Cause you're right. I, I can get stuck in the, my top 10, you know, and just go bounce back and forth. Um, and who sits with you as a spiritual mentor from the past that you can, and I know so many Christians are hungry for uh, rich discipleship and what a beautiful history we have to pull that from. Um, well, Dustin, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Theologian series. Um, I want to make sure that people get a chance to follow you on social media, find out about your ministry, how to get involved in the things that you're doing. I know you had a new book come out. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that before we close out? Well, first of all, let me say, Dale, it's been a privilege to join you. Thank you for the kind invitation extended to be on this series. It's an honor, and I'm humbled by it, uh, just to talk about these great things that we have a commonality in and an interest in. Uh, You can find me on social media, on Twitter specifically, if you just type in my first and last name, there I am. Um, It's not kind of hard to find. I've also recently started a, a podcast. I'm new kind of to this world, just desiring to give six to 10 minute kind of devotional thoughts every Tuesday and Thursday um, that your listeners can find uh, on walkingworthypodcast.com as Mm -hmm. well as various uh, podcast platforms. I'm currently the provost, uh, which is a a fancy academic term for something like vice president or chief academic officer at Union School of Theology in South Wales. Uh, My wife and I moved to the UK from the United States in July of 2020 uh, in the season of the pandemic. And so it's been quite interesting to adjust here. But most of my work is taking place at Union School of Theology. You can visit our website and look us up uh, there. Um, I'm in various places, articles and various other things. So perhaps just Google the name if you're interested um, and perhaps you'll come across something that I've done or written. Well, awesome, Dustin. It was a great conversation today and thank you for being with us. And thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Theologian series hosted by the Real Christianity Podcast. If you guys haven't left a review for our show, we would love that. Those reviews really do help the exposure of the show. Uh, On that note, uh, my name is Dale Partridge, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Real Christianity. This podcast is a 100% listener-supported audio ministry of relearn.org. Visit relearn.org for a library of theological resources, articles, podcasts, and videos to strengthen your biblical literacy and support your study of God's Word. For those interested in supporting our ministry, you can make a tax-deductible donation at relearn.org forward slash donate. Again, my name is Dale Partridge, and we're excited to have you back next week for another episode of Real Christianity.